Brandy. Yes, Kristen. Are we experts at what? Anything. No, no, we are not. Wait, so we're just two ladies who love black eyeliner, a cold can of fresca, and a really juicy lawsuit. Damn, Skippy. I'm Brandy Egan. And I'm Kristen Pitts. Let's, Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll be talking about Robert Courtney, the pharmacist who was caught diluting cancer drugs. And I'll be talking about Charles Manson. If you don't know who that is, we can't be friends. Not one bit. <laughs> this episode of Let's Go to Court is sponsored by no one. But <laughs> but my husband helped us set up the audio, so we're going to make it sponsored by the Gaming Historian. Brandy, did you know that you can buy the Gaming Historian Volume 1 on Blu-ray at GamingHistorian.com? I did not. How much is it? It's only $20. That is a bargain basement price right there. It sure is. And man, is it a value. So go over there today and buy yourself one. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving right now to go buy one. Come back, we're not done. <laughs> okay, so today I selected for our first episode to do my favorite trial in history, The People versus Charles Manson. This is the one that like, drew me in, got me started in true crime. I read the book about it when I was way too young. I think like 13 years old. Oh my God. I had nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> I had nightmares, but um, it started it all for me. So here we go. The People versus Charles Manson. Shortly after midnight on August 9th, 1969, Susan Atkins, Tex Watson, and Patricia Krenwinkel entered the property at 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, California while Linda Kasabian stood watch outside. They launch a brutal attack on the residents. In total, 102 stab wounds are inflicted on four victims, oh my God. while a fifth victim is shot. Left dead are actress Sharon Tate, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring, coffee heiress Abigail Folger, writer Wojciech Frykowski, and Stephen Parent, a teenage boy who happened to be in the wrong place at the worst possible time. Mm. The following night, Atkins, Watson, Krenwinkel, and Kasabian were joined by Leslie Van Houten, Clem Grogan, and Charles Manson as they ventured to the home of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. Watson, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten entered the home and brutally murdered the couple with knives and utensils from their own kitchen. Rosemary had 41 stab wounds, many of which were inflicted post-mortem. Lino had over 35 wounds, many of which were from an ivory-handled serving fork that was found still in his abdomen. Ugh. Wait, so did they did they go in there without any weapons whatsoever, and then they just went to the kitchen? And On the second night, they did. The first night, they came armed with their own yeah. knives. The second night, they came with nothing. Ugh. These murders were carried out on the orders of Charles Manson in order to incite a race riot. Manson was a hippie commune slash cult leader who ordered his followers to leave signs at the murder scenes to make it look as if the murders had been carried out by Black Panthers. Oh, my God. At the Tate murder scene, pig was written in blood on the front door of the home. At the LaBianca home, rise and death to pigs were written in blood on the walls. Helter Skelter was written on the refrigerator and war was carved into Lino's torso. Ugh. Manson believed that a race war he called Helter Skelter was coming soon. 
Manson had prophesied that racial tensions between blacks and whites was growing and that blacks would soon rise up in rebellion in American cities. Manson explained that the social turmoil he had been predicting had also been predicted by the Beatles. The White Album songs, <laughs> yes, right? It gets better. Okay. The White Album songs, he declared, told it all, although in code. In fact, he believed that the Beatles were speaking directly to the family. Oh. And that they were an elect group that had been instructed to preserve the worthy from the impending disaster. Sure. Yeah. Yes, the Beatles were speaking directly to <laughs> Charles Manson through the White Album. I hate it when that happens. I know. <laughs> Manson's prophecy told that the blacks would win the race war, but then would be incapable of running the world and that the family, get this, who had survived the war by hiding in a bottomless pit in the desert <laughs> would come to power and he would lead them. This How do you of course, hide in a bottomless so pit? So they legit had dune buggies and they went on missions in the desert every day to find the entrance to the bottomless pit. Oh my God. Yes. Um, this, of course, would never come to fruition, and the murders mm. would incite no such race war. Not only were the murders never believed to be committed by the Black Panthers, they weren't even connected to each other for several weeks. The LAPD even went so far as to make an announcement on August 12th that they had ruled out any connection between the two murders. Wait, so... Okay, so they were trying to make it super obvious that this was Black Panthers, and the police just immediately were like, nah, no, 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 and we don't even think the two murders, which have a lot of similarities, they're not even related. Great, okay. So then, um, in November of 1969, so several months later, Susan Atkins is being held in Los Angeles on charges resulting from a raid on the ranch where the family was living. There had been a, a raid. Lots of people were rounded up and arrested on different things. Um, stolen property, identity theft charges. And she was being held. And she told her cellmate that she and the members of the family were responsible for the Tate and LaBianca murders. The cellmate, wow. like freaked the fuck out and yeah. immediately called the LAPD and were like, listen, yeah, this is what this person just told me. And they immediately reacted to it. Um, on December 1st, 1969, LAPD announces warrants for the arrest for Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian. At that time, Manson and Atkins were already in police custody, Leslie Van Houten was already in police custody at that time as well, though her connection to the LaBianca murders had not yet been made. All were taken into custody without incident, though Watson had returned to his home in Texas and fought extradition, so he was tried separately. Okay. They decided not to wait for the extradition to come through, and they went ahead with charging the other four. Okay. In December, Susan Atkins went before a Los Angeles grand jury and told all. In the beginning, she was going to be the prosecution's star witness. She even struck a deal to avoid the death penalty. She would be their witness, she would tell everything, mm -hmm. and they would spare her the death penalty. But before the trial started, she recanted everything she told the grand jury and renewed her loyalty to Manson. Ultimately, though, her grand jury testimony led to indictments against Manson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten. Prosecutor Vincent Buliosi was assigned the case. Buliosi went on to write Helter Skelter, the book I read when I was 13. <laughs> it was uh, yes, any young girl. <laughs> a book about his experience with the trial, um, which to this day is the best-selling true crime book of all time. Better than In Cold Blood? Yes. Whoa. Yes. Okay, okay. I'll have to read it. <laughs> the trial began 
June 15, 1970. The prosecution's main witness was Linda Kasabian, who, along with Manson, Atkins, and Krenwinkel, had originally been charged with seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy. Since Kasabian, by all accounts, had not participated in the killings, she um, stood outside, stood watch the first night, and the second night she didn't enter the LaBianca home. She was present, and she actually stood kept a third murder from happening that same night. Manson had instructed them to go to another house, Uh um, a house of someone that they were familiar with, and she intentionally knocked on the next-door neighbor's house and alerted them, like, that something was happening, Uh and so the family left, and so another murder didn't happen that night. Wow. Yeah. So... They granted her immunity in exchange for her testimony, um, and so she detailed the both nights of the crimes. And though Van Houten was tried with the others, she was only present um, on the second night for the LaBianca La killings. So she was just charged with two counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. Just two counts. <laughs> yeah. No big deal. We've all been there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Originally, Judge William Keene was presiding and had reluctantly granted Manson permission to act as his own attorney. Oh, God. Right? Oh. <laughs> However, due to Manson's conduct, including violations of a gag order and submission of outlandish and nonsensical pretrial motions, the permission was withdrawn before the trial started. Well, the Beatles probably pulled it <laughs> Absolutely. <too. laughs> it's not all on. Him. So then Manson filed an affidavit of prejudice against Judge Keene, and he was replaced with Judge Charles H. Older. During the jury selection, it is reported that Manson would fix his stare on a subject for hours at a time, first oh. on Judge Older, then on Prosecutor Buliosi. Buliosi wrote in Helter Skelter that during one of these Manson stare-downs, his watch stopped, and he felt that Manson's mind powers were responsible oh for God. it. Oh, <laughs> God! would be so creepy though yeah. you know, when you're just, just like for hours yes. somebody just staring at you it's bad enough when you're just out in public yeah. and you catch somebody's eyes Absolutely. and they look away but oh my god okay yes. continue ultimately a jury of seven men and five women were selected and opening statements were set for July 24th 1970 the jury was sequestered and was warned that it could be a long trial but it turned into a sequestration of 225 days oh my god. longer than any jury in history to that point Oh, like nine months, nine, ten months they were sequestered for. And I assume they can't see their family. Nope, nothing. They can't watch TV. Nope. God. (laughs) (laughs) My nightmare. What's worse? (laughs) My nightmare. (laughs) On the first day of testimony, Manson showed up in court with an X carved into his forehead. He issued a statement that he had been considered inadequate and incompetent to speak or defend himself and that he'd X'd himself from the establishment's world. Oh, my God. Over the following weekend, the female defendants duplicated the marks on their foreheads, as did the other family members who never wavered in their loyalty to Manson during the trial. So family members loitered in the halls and, like, stood vigil outside the courthouse during the entire proceedings. This became such a problem that in order to keep them out of the courtroom proper, the prosecution subpoenaed them as potential witnesses so they could not enter the courtroom while other witnesses were, yeah. were testifying. 
and they all had these X's. They all had the X's. And then each day they would like camp out on the sidewalk right outside the courthouse. And they had these big knives like in sheaths that they wore on them. And yeah, just their X's on their forehead. And like reporters, they would, you know, talk to reporters and harass people coming to the courthouse. Uh It was a really big problem. Buliosi, in his opening statement for the prosecution, promised the jury that the evidence would show Manson had a motive for the murders that was perhaps even more bizarre than the murders themselves. The prosecution argued the triggering of Helter Skelter was Manson's main motive. The crime scene's bloody white album references, Pig, Rise, Helter Skelter, were correlated with testimony about Manson's predictions that the murders blacks would commit at the onset of Helter Skelter would involve the, would involve the writing of pigs on the walls in victims' blood. On July 27th, Buliosi announced the people call Linda Kasabian. Manson's attorney, Irving Kanarek, immediately sprung up with an objection. Object, Your Honor, on the grounds that this witness is not competent and is insane. Calling Kanarek to the bench and telling him his conduct was outrageous, Judge Older denied his objection and Kasabian was sworn in as a witness. She would remain on the stand for an astounding 18 days. Oh my God. Including seven days of cross-examination. Whoa. Kasabian proved a very credible witness, though, despite the best efforts during cross-examination of defense attorneys to make her appear as a spaced out hippie, um, centering on the fact that she admittedly took LSD over 50 times. Mm -hmm. Other defense questions explored her beliefs in ESP, witchcraft, or focused on the vibrations she claimed to receive from Manson. Sure. You know, those mind (laughs) powers again. (laughs) It's watch stopping. That's right. (laughs) A major distraction from Kasabian's testimony came on August 3rd when Manson stood before the jury and held up a copy of the Los Angeles Times with the headline, Manson Guilty, Nixon Declares. This was a reference to a statement made the previous day when President Nixon had publicly denounced what he saw as the media's glamorization of Manson. Mm. The defense moved for a mistrial on the grounds that the headline prejudiced the jury against the defense. But Judge Older denied the motion after each juror stated under oath that he or she would not be influenced by the president's reported declaration of guilt. The next day... The female defendants stood up and said in unison that in light of Nixon's remark, there was no point in going on with the trial. In unison? In unison. (laughs) I love that. That kind of seems like, um, I don't know, seventh grade church choir. Absolutely. (laughs) They all have black pants and white tops. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) On October 5th, Manson was denied denied the court's permission to question a prosecution witness whom the defense attorneys had declined to cross-examine. Leaping over the defense table, Manson attempted to attack the judge. He is a tiny man. He's five foot two. Tiny. Manson is? Manson is five foot two. Super tiny. I would not have guessed. They said he leapt off the table like a monkey, like at the judge, like nearly made it to the bench. Um, he was wrestled to the ground by bailiffs. He was removed from the courtroom, as were the female defendants, because um, they had begun chanting in Latin as he Oh, my God! <laughs> oh, can you imagine being that judge? <laughs> so it's reported that Judge Older began wearing a gun under his robes after that day. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> So, testimony corroborating that of Kasabian came from several other prosecution witnesses. Most notably, the cellmate Atkins had confessed to who originally alerted police of the family's involvement. 
Other witnesses described receiving threats from Manson, evidence of Manson's total control over the lives of the family members, or conversations in which Manson had told of the coming Helter Skelter. This dude was telling it to everybody. He's oh, like, sure. do you have three seconds? <laughs> Let me tell you about the future. Do you have a minute to <laughs> yes, talk about do the you environment? Have, <laughs> do you have 24 minutes for me to stare at you nonstop <laughs> and tell you what the world is coming to? Don't worry, though. You can come to my bottomless That's pit. That's right. We'll be Let's safe. go to my bottomless pit on my dune buggy. <laughs> Uh, yes. 19-year-old Paul Watkins, Manson's foremost recruiter of young women. He was supposed to be, um, like, very attractive, and he was the one that drew in all the young women to the family. How did I know he'd be super hot? <laughs> yes. He provided key testimony about the strange motive for the Tate-LaBianca murders, including its link to the, the Bible's Book of Revelation and the Beatles' White Album. Watkins testified that Manson discussed Helter Skelter constantly hmm. when Buliosi asked Watkins how... Helter Skelter would start. This is how he responded. There would be some atrocious murders that some of the blacks from Watts would come up into Bel Air and Beverly Hills and just really wipe some people out. Just cut up bodies and smear blood and write things on the wall and cut up little boys and make parents watch. So in retaliation, this would scare them. All the other white people would be afraid that this would happen to them. So out of their fear, they would just go to the ghetto and just start shooting black people like crazy. But all they would shoot would be the garbage man and all the other ones that were with Whitey in the first place. And underneath it all, the black Muslims would know that Helter Skelter was coming down. Oh, my God. (laughs) This guy. On November 16th, 1970, after 22 weeks of testimony, the prosecution rested its case. When trial resumed three days later, the defense startled the courtroom spectators and the prosecution by announcing, without calling a single witness... The defense rests. Suddenly, the three female defendants began shouting that they wanted to testify. In chambers, attorneys for the women explained that although their clients wanted to testify, they were strongly opposed, Mm -hmm. believing that they would, still under the powerful influence of Manson, testify that they planned and committed the murders without Manson's help. Returning to the courtroom, Judge Older declared that the right to testify took precedence and said that the defendants could testify over the objections of their counsel. Atkins was then sworn in as a witness, but her attorney, Day Shen, refused to question her. Returning to Chambers, Van Houten's attorney, Ronald Hughes, vehemently stated that he would not push a client out the window and that allowing them to testify would be aiding and abetting suicide. Yeah. The next day came another surprise. Charles Manson announced that he, too, wished to testify before his co-defendants did. He testified first without the jury being present so that potentially excludable testimony relating to evidence incriminating co-defendants might be identified before it prejudiced the jury. His over one hour of testimony full of discretions fascinated observers. Get ready. This is some deep shit here. (laughs) I never went to school, so I never growed up to read and write too good. So I've just stayed in jail and I've stayed stupid and I've stayed a child while I've watched your world grow up. And then I look at the things you do and I don't understand. You eat meat and you kill things that are better than you are. And then you say how bad and even killers your children are. You made your children that way. These children that come come at you with their knives, they are your children. You taught them. I didn't teach them. I just tried to help them stand up. Most of the people at that ranch that you call the family were just people you didn't want. People that were alongside the road that their parents had kicked out that did not want to go to juvenile hall. So I did the best I could and I took them up to my garbage dump and I told them this, that in love there is no wrong. 
I told them anything they do for their brothers and sisters is good if they do it with a good thought. I don't understand you, but I don't try. I don't try to judge nobody. I know the only person I can judge is me, but I know this, that in your hearts and your own souls, you're as much as responsible for the Vietnam War as I am for these killings. I can't judge any of you. I have no malice against you and no ribbons for you. But I think that it is high time that you all start looking at yourselves and judging the lie that you live in. I can't dislike you, but I will say this to you. You haven't got long before they're all going to kill yourselves because you are all crazy and you can project that back at me, but I am only what lives inside of each and every one of you. My father is the jailhouse. My father is your system. I am only what you made me. I am only a reflection of you. You want to kill me? I'm already dead. Have been all my life. I've spent 23 years in tombs that you built. Sometimes I think about giving it back to you. Sometimes I think about jumping on you and letting you shoot me. If I could, I would jerk this microphone off and beat your brains out with it because that's what you deserve. That is what you deserve. What? These children were finding themselves. What they did, if they did whatever they did is up to them. They'll have to explain that to you. You expect to break me? Impossible. You broke me years ago. You killed me years ago. Mr. Buliosi is a hard driving prosecutor, polished education, a master of words, semantics. He's a genius. He's got everything that every lawyer would ever want to have except one thing, a case. He doesn't have a case. Were I allowed to defend myself, I could have proven this to you. They put these hideous bodies on display and they imply, if he gets out, look and see what will happen to you. Helter skelter means confusion, literally. It doesn't mean any war with anyone. It doesn't mean that some people are going to kill other people. Helter skelter is confusion. Confusion is coming down around you fast. If you can't see the confusion coming down around you fast, you can call it what you wish. Is it a conspiracy that the music is telling the youth to rise up against the establishment because the establishment is rapidly destroying things? Is that a conspiracy? The music speaks to you every day, but you are too deaf, dumb, and blind to even listen to the music. It's not my conspiracy. It's not my music. I hear what it relates. It says rise. It says kill. Why blame it on me? I didn't write the music. Oh (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I'm like, I'm curled up in kind of a ball right now because I, it just, the whole thing makes me so uncomfortable. Yes. I just cannot imagine being in that no courtroom kidding. when he was going off like that. Because you know he didn't take a breath. No, he's like, he, that dude would just talk for an hour and a half nonstop. Oh my God. Um, so after a brief cross-examination by Buliosi, Older asked Manson if he now wished to testify before the jury. He replied, I've already relieved all the pressure I had, and Manson left the stand. As he walked by the counsel table, he told his three co-defendants, you don't have to testify now. Wow. (laughs) I took care of it. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) There remained one last frightening surprise of the Tate-LaBianca murder trial. When the trial resumed on November 30th following... Manson's testimony, Ronald Hughes, defense attorney for Leslie Van Houten, failed to show. A subsequent investigation revealed he had disappeared over the weekend while camping in a remote Cespe Hot Springs area northwest of Los Angeles. It is widely believed that Hughes was ordered murdered by Manson for his determination to pursue a defense strategy at odds with that favored by Manson. Hughes had made clear his hope to show that Van Houten was not acting independently, as Manson suggested, but was completely controlled in her actions by Manson. Was Hughes the one who said... I wouldn't help someone jump out a window. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, oh um, 
interestingly, his body was found like a year later. Mm-hmm. No cause of death was able to be determined. But multiple family members have claimed that, that he was, in fact, murdered on orders of Manson. Wow. Yeah. But nothing ever came of it. Nothing ever came of it. No charges were ever brought because they can never prove a cause of death or anything. Manson's defense attorney, Irving Kanarek, argued to the jury that Manson was being prosecuted because of his lifestyle. He argued that prosecution's theory was a of a motive was fanciful. His argument lasted seven days. Oh my God. (laughs) Prompting Judge Older to call it no longer an argument, but a filibuster. No kidding. Serious. Yeah. What do you even say for For seven days? days. Yes. Starts reading the cat in the hat. You have to. Yes. Yeah. Here's a recipe I found. (laughs) This is a list of things I need from the grocery store today. I urge you to write these down for me today. (laughs) Disruptions of the prosecution's closing argument by the defendants led Older to ban the four defendants from the courtroom for the remainder of the guilt phase. In his summation, Buliosi described Charles Manson as an evil guru who sent out from the fires of hell at Spawn Ranch three heartless, bloodthirsty robots, and unfortunately for him, one human being, the little hippie girl, Linda Kasabian. Hmm. Buliosi ended his summation with a roll call of the dead. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, Jay Sebring, Stephen Parent, Lino LaBianca, Rosemary LaBianca are not here with us in this courtroom, but from their graves, they call out for justice. Oh. Yeah. I think that would be a pretty powerful closing. Yeah. Yeah. The jury deliberated a week before returning its verdict on January 25th, 1971. The jury found all defendants guilty on each count of first-degree murder. Next came the penalty phase, and midway through, Manson shaved his head and trimmed his beard into a fork. He told the press, he told the press, I am the devil, and the devil always has a bald head. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you said he trimmed his beard into into a fork? fork? Like, I think, yeah, like two lines. (laughs) Very, just very devilish. Well, that would scare the shit out yes. of me. <laughs> His co-defendants and loyal followers outside the courthouse soon followed suit and shaved their heads as well. Oh, my God. After hearing additional evidence in the penalty phase of the trial, the jury completed its work by sentencing each of the four defendants to death on March 29th. How long did they deliberate? One week. One week, okay. I, which sounds like a, like a long time I to me. I know. I know. It does. <laughs> When the clerk read the verdict, Manson shouted, You people have no authority over me. Patricia Krenwinkel declared, You have judged yourselves. Mm -hmm. Susan Atkins said, Better lock your doors and watch your own kids. And Leslie Van Houten complained, The whole system is a game. The trial was over. At over nine months, it had been the longest and most expensive in American history. The death sentences handed down by the Tate-LaBianca jury would never be imposed due to a... California Supreme Court ruling in 1972 declaring the state's death penalty law unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. The death sentences of the four convicted defendants, as well as for Tex Watson, who had been convicted and sentenced to death in a separate trial in 1971, were commuted to life in prison. So uh, where are they now? 
Susan Atkins was incarcerated at the California Institution for Women in Frontero, California. She had an exemplary prison record and eventually showed remorse for her crimes. In September 1974, Atkins said her cell door opened and a brilliant light poured over her. Describing the experience in her 1977 book, Child of Satan, Child of God, Atkins said she believed the light was Jesus telling her she'd been forgiven. Because. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yes. Okay. In 2008, after multiple parole denials, Atkins filed for a compassionate release due to terminal brain cancer. Her request was denied. The Buliosi actually argued in favor of her release, stating that her medical care was costing the state an exorbitant amount of money. And hmm. she died in prison on September 29, 2009. Patricia Krenwinkel is currently the longest incarcerated female inmate in the California penal system. She has been denied parole 14 times, though she has shown remorse. In a 1994 interview, she said, I wake up every day knowing that I am a destroyer of the most precious thing, which is life. And I do that because that's what I deserve. I deserve to wake up every morning and know that. Her next parole hearing will be held in 2022, and she will be 74 years old. Wow. Um, Leslie Van Houten's first-degree murder conviction in the Tate-LaBianca trial was overturned by state appeal in 1976 on the grounds that Judge Older um, erred in not granting Van Houten's motion for a mistrial following the disappearance of her attorney. In her first retrial, the jury was unable to reach a verdict. She was tried a third time in 1978 and convicted of first-degree murder after the jury rejected her defense of diminished capacity as the result of prolonged use of hallucinogenic drugs. In 2016, the California Parole Board recommended parole for Van Houten, but Governor Jerry Brown, cognizant of the politics in the case, rejected the board's recommendation, and Van Houten remains in prison. Hmm. Charles Manson never showed any remorse or took any responsibility for the crimes of which he was convicted. He was denied parole for the 12th and final time in 2012. He didn't even appear at that parole hearing. Um, he said that there's no way they were ever going to parole him, so he stopped going to his parole hearings. Hey, I agree with Charles Manson. Yeah. <laughs> he died of natural causes on November 19th, 2017, one week after his 83rd birthday. And that's uh, the trial of Charles Manson. Oh, that is crazy. Yes. That is totally yes. <laughs> Okay, so you read all about this when you were 13. Yeah, so I started reading about it when I was 13, and I'm like, became like obsessed with it. I've read like every book there is to read about it. Uh-huh. It's just fascinating to me, like not the, in the fact that I like admire Charles Manson. No, no. But... I do actually think that if I was alive in the 60s, I could have easily been sucked into his cult. You think so? I do. I think that I have this, um, I don't even, this personality type that, like, makes me think that other people's ideas are so great. I just want to support them. Like, look how easily you got me to start this podcast. (laughs) It's true. I just said, do you want to do this? And you're like, sure. Sure. (laughs) Um, There's a race war coming. (laughs) Helter Skelter is coming down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. But you know what, like, what strikes me is, you know, so they do all this stuff. They're all sucked into Mm -hmm. Charles Manson. And then one of them just, like, spills the beans in a Yeah, so Linda Kasabian, the reason that she turned state prosecution so easily 
was that she really was just a hippie girl. It was, you know, the 60s. She was looking to get away from her ex-husband. Like, okay, yeah. she, she just wanted, just wanted she just wanted love and, yeah. and, and drugs and, you know, to live off the land. And she got in way over her head. And the reason, actually, she got mixed up in all of this, um, the murders and stuff, is that she's the only one who had a valid driver's license. And so what? she drove the cars the two days. Wow. Yes, because they thought, at least if we get pulled over, because they would drive without driver's license all yeah, the time. Sure, that was sure. not something that they were concerned about. But if they got pulled over, at least they would have somebody who had a valid so driver's license. So they probably license. knew she wasn't the best person for this Absolutely. Group, but she had the driver's license. So, yeah. okay. Absolutely. Jesus. Yeah. That's nuts. It is nuts. That's pretty crazy. What a sad, weird story. Absolutely. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's devastating. Um, Sharon Tate's uh, sister has uh, gone and argued at all of the parole hearings for everybody involved in the case wow. for her whole life. She was like, she was much younger than Sharon Tate. She was only, I want to say like 12 or 13 when, when Sharon yeah. Tate was murdered. And so she's made it her life's work to go and argue at all of the parole hearings that nobody should be paroled. And Yeah. I can't even imagine what that would be like to have your loved one die and then watch. Then be kind of become an icon of sorts. Yes. Yeah. yeah, And have so much media coverage. So breathless, you know, like we are right now. Exactly. Absolutely. (laughs) That would be be really, really hard. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And and I didn't mention it here, but Sharon Tate was actually eight months pregnant at the time that she was murdered. And so her baby could have survived if she, it was, if she was found soon enough after her death, but that didn't happen. And so really there's another, her family was really devastated by that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Going back. Yes. To the, you said the lady who, I'm sorry, I'm terrible with names. No, it's fine. But the the knock at the door, how Uh she kind of threw things off. How did that work exactly? So after they went to the LaBianca house, after those murders, they were instructed to go to this other house. It was actually an apartment, to this other apartment that the family knew the people who lived there. And they were instructed to go murder those people. Right. And so um, of the group that was there, Linda Kasabian was the only one who'd previously been to that residence. And so she intentionally knocked on the neighbor's door Uh and then was like, yeah, no, we have the wrong place, guys. I don't know. I don't know where it is. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So it's kind of controversial because she was present the nights of the murders and didn't do anything to necessarily stop them. But she did that. So it's kind of controversial that she was granted immunity. Yeah. Yeah. But they had to get them. Absolutely. It was the only way they were going to yeah. have the the direct evidence to, to convict them all. Ooh. Yes. Okay. That's a good one. Yes. Starting off with a bang. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to lower the bar. <laughs> that sounds like a joke, but it's really not. Okay. So let's go back to this. A couple weeks. Mm-hmm. I was like... Randy, let's do a podcast where we talk about famous trials. It'll be sweet. And you're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And you came up with the idea of, for our first episode, we should talk about the trial that got us interested in trials. Absolutely. And I was like, great. I don't even have to think about it. Definitely Robert Courtney, the pharmacist who was caught diluting all these important drugs. So then I started researching this. (laughs) There was no criminal trial for him. Oh. 
In my head, there was. Oh. In my head, there definitely was a big criminal trial. Yeah. And I knew all about it. Absolutely. Uh, no. No criminal <laughs> trial. There were tons of civil cases. I was going to say, and he's in jail, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I oh. mean, he... I'll, I'll get into it, because it's, yeah. like, it's a really cool story. I decided to do it anyway, just yeah. because... It's cool. It's also it's, local to us. So, yes, it yeah. is. And, you know, even though it turns out there was no criminal trial in my head... <laughs> yes. There was. Absolutely. And this is why I got interested in it, whether that's <laughs> stupid or not. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> okay, so um, Robert Courtney had a pretty normal childhood, it seemed like. He was the son of a minister, grew up in Hayes, Kansas, which is a small town. Mm-hmm. Um, went to the University of Missouri, Kansas City for pharmacy school, graduated in 75, uh, went to work at Research Medical Tower Pharmacy in Kansas City, which I think, I mean, I've never seen it, but I think that the pharmacy was like at the ground level mm-hmm. of this big building, mm-hmm. you know, doctor's offices. So by like 1986 or so, he decides to buy buy out the owner and he becomes the owner of Research Medical Tower Pharmacy. So he had... A great reputation. Mm-hmm. His customers loved him. He was really clean cut and friendly. Um, he had a great reputation amongst other pharmacists because he was doing something kind of cutting edge at the time. So he was specializing in intravenous drugs. So he would take, and I'm not a medical person. <laughs> But give me your medical expertise on this. Okay, don't question this. So the chemo would come to him mm-hmm. or whatever it was in powdered form and he would mix in saline and just basically hand over the bag. The bag, to the, the intravenous bag. And yeah, and the doctors loved that because then, you know, they didn't have to do it. There was no risk of error on their part. And, you know, he was, you know, kind of providing this extra service. So he had a great reputation for doing that. Great reputation at his church because he sang in the choir. He was a deacon. Mm. You know, good guy. He had two daughters. He had a wife. Things seemed pretty normal, good. 1990, he's making $48,000 a year salary, which seems fine. You know, I mean, not not crazy. Yeah, but but it's comfortable. Yeah, 1990. Well, around this time was when things started going downhill. So... Around 1990-ish, he got a divorce from his wife. He got custody of his two daughters, and he started buying drugs on the gray market. So he'd get these drugs and mark them up, sell them in his pharmacy at full price Mm. to skim a little money off the top. And it's interesting... What? Gray market. So he doesn't really know what's coming in, though, right? There's no, if he's buying it on the gray market, like, it could be anything, right? You know, I don't really know. Like, that's kind of one of those things I... I have no clue. Yeah. But, you know. Absolutely. Gray, gray markets yeah. are definitely sketchy. Yeah, super sketch. And, like, it was interesting because I read in this article in the New York, New York Times, the FBI was talking about how, like, obviously you don't go from choir boy, good guy, <laughs> to all of a sudden, yes. today I'm going to dilute cancer drugs. <laughs> yeah. So, like, this, they think, was kind of the start of it. Like, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, you start kind of down this slippery slope mm-hmm. of, oh, yeah, I'll just do this gray market stuff and get a little extra cash on the side. Yeah. Know, it's fine. Okay. So one of the most fascinating articles I read was this article in the New York Times where they interview the guy, <laughs> interview the lady <laughs> sorry, who became his second wife. Okay. Because everyone else in, else in the story seems to have kind of liked him. Maybe they thought he, he was a little aloof, but they mm-hmm. respected him professionally. They thought he was a good guy. Mm-hmm. They interviewed this woman who was his second wife, and she gave kind of, like, 
I think the inside scoop on right. what, it, what it was really like. To the be real with story. Yeah, like okay, yeah, he waved you <laughs> yeah. from across the lawn. Yeah, that's what it's like to be in his house. Yeah. So you know, he divorces his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, not too long after that, he starts kind of courting this woman who he knew from childhood. And, you know, he's living in Kansas City, but she's in Michigan with a child from a previous relationship. And he was very flashy. He had a nice car. He dressed very well. And he wanted things to move super fast Mm -hmm. in their relationship. Like, ridiculously crazy fast. (laughs) Okay, so they've been dating for two months Uh at this point. He proposes to her with a four-carat diamond ring. Well, who can say no to that? And she didn't say no. (laughs) She said, okay, after two months. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So their plan was they were going to get married Valentine's Day 1991. Well, after Christmas, he's like, I can't wait that long. Yeah. What? I know. Norman and I were engaged for like uh, a year and we dated for like four years before that. So I don't get this guy Uh, at all. Yeah, I was engaged for two years before I got married. (laughs) So they elope. Mm -hmm. They get things done really quickly. And it's kind of unclear from the article how long they stayed married. But it seems like maybe a week tops. Oh my gosh. Yeah, not long at all. And she said that she started to see this other side to him. So only took a week, huh? <laughs> I do wonder. These like, are the things you find out yeah. if you date somebody longer than two months. I feel like, right? This is just good advice you're giving right now. <laughs> date longer. Date at least three months. At least three months, um, unless it is the ring is over two carats. Yes. Yes. <laughs> totally. Got to factor in the jewelry. Absolutely. So she said. That he told her, you know, very early on, you are not allowed to gain a pound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, he wanted her hair done at oh all times, gosh. her nails done at all times, makeup done. Um, he wanted a 1950s housewife? Basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. And he, she said, and I wish I could remember the direct quote, but it was something like, he wanted me like a doll on a shelf. Mm-hmm. I mean, because even in the house, it was not like... Messy bun and leggings. Mm-hmm. It was... I'm describing myself right now. Yeah. My entire outfit was purchased at Costco. <laughs> he would not have liked me as no. a at all. So, you know, things aren't going well. He gets violent with one of his daughters, according to her. So she, she kind of says, uh, no. They end up getting annulled. Oh, um, gosh. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Oh, wait. Oh, my God. I almost forgot to tell you the craziest part. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, he's been flashy this whole time. He tells her, I want you driving a nice car. Mm -hmm. Um, He kind of sends her out to do some house hunting, but he's not satisfied with, with her taste. She's not thinking grand enough for them. But at the same time... He's also kind of complaining like, oh, my parents are hitting me up for money too much. And, oh, we need to think of ways to save money. So he comes up with a way to save money. Gosh, I'm scared. I'm scared. (laughs) Kristen, I'm scared. (laughs) It's okay. He can't get you. He's in prison. (laughs) So his way of saving money was he tells her, when we go out to eat, I'll order an entree. You don't order an entree. You can eat off my plate. <laughs> I'll put it on a tiny plate on the floor. <laughs> What's so? Oh my 
my gosh. I'd be like, deuces, guys. Yeah, no, like, no, like, I can put up with a lot. You can no, tell me to do no my hair. No number of no. carrots in a wedding ring is worth it. So what's funny is, like, you know, I read that article and I was like, no. I got oh to that part. Gosh. And, like, I know he ends up diluting cancer drugs, but I went and told Norman this and he was like, that monster. <laughs> That's the worst part. <laughs> I feel like it's just one of those things, like, you know how when you see someone in a grocery store parking lot and instead of taking their cart to the little place, mm-hmm. they just leave it? Yes. And you, like, look at that person like... This is all I need to know about you. <laughs> you are you can awesome. tell a lot about a person by their cart behavior. Yes, yes. And I feel like that story with the Andre is like, yes. okay, I'm on to you. Clearly sir. a monster. God, I can't believe I almost forgot to tell you that. Okay, so yada yada yada. You know, they they get their shit annulled. So then, in 1994, comes the third marriage, and she is seven years younger than him. Which I don't think is a massive age gap at all, mm-hmm. but I do kind of wonder about that a little bit just because I spend way too much time on Reddit relationships <laughs> where people write in with their relationship <laughs> problems. And I have noticed that anytime now any- we're relationship experts too, <laughs> gather around, kids. <laughs> Listen, I've been in many relationships. <laughs> Learned a few things. So I've noticed that when people write in and they're like, I'm 24 and I'm dating someone who's 45. And, you know, oh, things are really weird. Like, (laughs) I've noticed that, like, the top comment is always, sorry, I just bumped the microphone. The top comment is always like, yeah, you know, the thing is, like, a lot of people who date people who are way younger than them do that because people their own age will not put up with their bullshit. Absolutely. And that's not always the case, but I do kind of wonder if, like, after the first marriage goes to shit, the second wife is like, uh, deuces, goodbye. Then he finds this younger woman, you know. He's like, yeah, I can do whatever I want. Like, she doesn't know any better. Yeah, she's maybe a little more naive. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I don't know her personally. I don't know her personally. Either. <laughs> and yet we're experts. we're making yes we're we're making expert assumptions about her. <laughs> this poor woman. So um, he has her sign a prenup, of course, and uh, they ended up having twin boys together. And she also had a child from a previous relationship. Mm-hmm. So now we're fast forwarding to the late '90s, and things are going awesome for Robert Courtney. He um, buys a second pharmacy in Merriam, Kansas, so now he owns two pharmacies. He is... Do you know the name of the pharmacy in Merriam, Kansas? (laughs) Do you go there? I live in Merriam, Kansas! (laughs) I don't, but I I think what they said was that basically he didn't have much to do with their stuff. That's there what is I'm a telling pharmacy you to be nice. right down the street from my house that is known. It, like, people come from all over to go to it because they will compound drugs. Uh-huh. So they take medication that's usually only available orally and they make it into a topical form. Oh. Like, people do it for their cats. When their cats are sick, so they can put it on their ears. Well, yeah, because who like, wants to give a um, cat a pill? Hormone replacement for women. They do that. They compound drugs. So yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if it's that. Yeah. <laughs> Time to Google. Time to do some serious Googling. <laughs> Especially after you hear all this stuff. No kidding. <laughs> so, like I said, second pharmacy. And around this time, he pledges $1 million to his church's new building fund. Ooh. So, he is becoming the He's little philanthropist. Absolutely. A little flashy. <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, so, like I said, in 1990, he was making a salary of $48,000. Mm-hmm. By, like, late 90s, early 2000s, he has $18.7 million in assets. What the fuck? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. How does this happen? <laughs> Not Any by day now. <laughs> things are going to turn around for these girls. <laughs> Listen, we just need to keep on our grind and just doing our thing. <laughs> or, or you can do some really shady stuff. <laughs> Okay, so... So what you're saying is we need to buy a pharmacy. I'm afraid so. Multiple pharmacies. Um, <laughs> it's so funny to, like, be sitting here thinking about what it would be like to have $18.7 million in assets because, my God. Oh, my God. I can't even... Even the nicest real estate agent would describe this place as cozy. <laughs> <laughs> when you came in, I immediately told you, sorry, we don't have curtains. We're using quilts. <laughs> so anyway, moving forward, you know, like I said, he's well respected by almost everybody. Except pharmaceutical sales reps. Mm. Pharmaceutical sales reps hate Robert Courtney. Mm-hmm. And they hate him because he has this kind of weird policy where he either gets evasive or just kind of dismissive anytime they're like, hey, how how much of this drug are you selling? Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And apparently That's that messes... Shady. Yeah, I would call that shady. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they call a red flag. Yes. I think I've heard that term yes, before. Yes. I made it up. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yada, 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 lost my place. Okay, so this this is how they get their commissions, apparently. So, you know, he's messing with these people's money, which will make you some enemies fast. Absolutely. So the person who seemed to dislike him the most was this guy named Daryl Ashley. He worked for Eli Lilly. And they had bad blood going way, way back. Mm -hmm. I think I saw something where it said, like, in 1989, Robert Courtney reneged on some sales contract. So... Daryl Ashley has disliked this guy for a while. Well, in 1998, he somehow finds out that Robert Courtney is selling more chemotherapy drugs to the doctors and research medical tower than he, Daryl Ashley, is supplying to Robert hmm. Courtney. So he's like, That's huh. Yeah. So fishy is afoot. Yes, yes. <laughs> the thing that kills me is I couldn't find any interviews with this guy because mm-hmm. I would really love to know what he was... Kristen, have I got a surprise for you. <laughs> he is in the hallway right now. Daryl Ashley, come on come down. down. <laughs> Damn it, don't tease me. God, I, I just would... I would love to talk to him because he seems, he seems like my kind of guy. He yeah. holds a grudge. Yeah. <laughs> you know. He's suspicious yes. all the time of everybody. Absolutely. So, you know, he, he, he hears this somehow. Mm-hmm. And so he goes to his employer, Eli Lilly, and he tells them what he's heard. And so naturally, this is me just making assumptions. I My assumption is they didn't go, jump to like, oh, he's diluting these drugs. I think they probably thought maybe he has some other supplier. Abs- or maybe he's yeah. doing the gray market. You know, something mm-hmm. more normal. Yeah. So Eli Lilly does this internal investigation, but they didn't find any other suppliers. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Meh. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> Whoopsies. <laughs> but 
Daryl Ashley, my new favorite person, who's <laughs> evidently hanging out in my bathroom right now. <laughs> so in 2001, you know, he hasn't let this go. So he mentions this to a nurse who's working in Research Medical Tower. He says, hey, Robert Courtney is selling three times more chemo drugs than he's buying from me. Mm-hmm. So this is when things get rolling. The nurse goes to Dr. Verda Hunter, who's an oncologist there, and she mentions what she just heard from Daryl Ashley. And Verda Hunter, you know, obviously, like, that's a, that's a scary thing to hear. But I think she was also kind of freaked out about it because she had all these patients. You know, she'd been going to Robert Courtney for years for these drugs. And she had all these patients who were going through chemo, but they weren't having such a tough time with chemo. Mm. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, so, like, chemo is supposed to... It's like, it, like, clicks and it makes sense with her, like... Oh my god, that's yes. horrible. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's it's awful. I mean, this is like it's funny to try to pick like the sickest part of a really sick story, but mm-hmm. this part like, oh man, this part bugs me so much because, you know, chemo is supposed to kick your ass. You mm-hmm. run a low-grade fever, you lose your hair, you feel awful. Mm-hmm. And with each round, it's supposed to build up in your system and you're supposed to feel worse and worse and worse. Yeah. But this doctor's patients weren't really having such bad symptoms. And, you know, like, you think about just human nature, you you wouldn't be like, oh, no, I don't feel bad. Instead, they, they felt kind of optimistic. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we're handling this really well. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just like, Ugh. fuck that guy. Yeah, serious. Are we cursing on this? I, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we are now. <laughs> Delia Chelston, she talked about how after her fourth round of chemo, she didn't really feel much of anything. And then the same thing after the fifth and sixth treatments, she actually felt fairly good. And again, it made her feel like optimistic. Absolutely. Like, oh, I'm not even that sick. I'm getting better. Yeah. Yeah. Devastating. That is devastating. Oh, absolutely. And then there was this other woman, Jacqueline Talman. Her husband, Gary, received chemo medication from Robert Courtney. But, of course, he didn't have the usual side effects. Mm -hmm. I I don't think he even lost his hair. And she said in this episode of American Greed that, oh, my God, it's just, like, it's addictive. Um, That at the time, they looked at each other and they were like, what's this chemo? It's kind of a snap. We're tolerating this really well. And, of course, a while later, they tried experimental treatments at a different facility. And then Gary Mm -hmm. had all the, the side effects you'd expect. So... Gary, you know, eventually died, and God, it's just, that's just horrible. Mm-hmm. So, Verda Hunter, she's heard this rumor from her nurse. She has had these weird experiences with, with some of her patients, not having these normal reactions to chemo. Are you crying? <laughs> My eyes are watering oh. so bad. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Let me get you a tissue. My eyes are I have, like, tears running down my face right now. Not from crying. <laughs> oh, so you're just a monster. You're I'm hearing monster. about all this. Yeah, and you're like, right. who cares? Like, I no. did burn a really strong, crazy, obnoxious candle before you came here. I wonder if that's what it is. <laughs> I think it's this air. The air exchange is right there. I think it's just, like, blowing in oh. my face. Do you want to switch places? No, this is fine. Continue. I'm I'm loving it. Okay, great. <laughs> Brought to you by McDonald's. Yeah, we're sponsored by McDonald's. 
We're so rich. We almost have $18.7 million in assets. <laughs> any day now. Yeah, any, any time, really. It'll come through. Okay. So Dr. Verda Hunter, she takes the chemo drugs to a lab to be tested. Just to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, check things out. She gets the lab results back. Sure enough, they are diluted big time. Like, way less than 50% of the medication that they should have. Oh, my God. So she was physically sick. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, God. So she calls in the FBI. And the FBI, it's funny, like, they swarm in. But at the same time, they're kind of like, it can't be. Yeah. You know, like, this was so unheard of that a pharmacist would dilute cancer drugs. And who does this? Here's my yeah. question. Okay. I know you're an expert, so I expect you to know the answer <laughs> I to this. I am an expert. Do pharmacists take any kind of oath like a doctor does? You know, I'm like sure they do. The do no harm I'm oath. Sure. Oh, okay. Excuse me. I forgot that I'm an expert. Yes. <laughs> yes, they do. Do I mean, I feel like they're in charge of so much. I feel yes. like they have to take yes. some kind of oath, right? I would think so. I sure would think so. Okay, Our so oath yes, bullshit. expert this, answer. Yes. yes, expert answer here Answered. is that yes, it's the uh, the unbreakable unbreakable vow from Harry Potter. <laughs> the pharmacists have to take, <laughs> yeah. and he broke that shit big time. <laughs> Ugh, I hate him so much. Okay, so uh, let's see. FBI comes in and they're like, there's got to be some other explanation. Mm-hmm. So they, but they work with Dr. Hunter. They're like, will you help us with a sting operation? So she, oh my God. You know, after she got those lab results back, she obviously stopped going to Robert. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, she, she wants to help the FBI. So she's like, okay. So she has to go back to Robert Courtney and apologize to him for not using his services. And oh say, hey, will you please, you know, fill these prescriptions for me? Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Can you imagine? No, I can't even imagine having to do that. I have the worst poker face. I would be the last person. (laughs) (laughs) He would see the fire in my eyes and he would know. Like, you seem kind of angry about these cancer drugs. (laughs) No, just having a bad day, a bummer of a day. So, the FBI gets the drugs back. The lab shows that the drugs were definitely diluted. So they move really fast. On August 13th, 2001, law enforcement swarmed the pharmacy and they charged him with misbranding medication and adulteration, which sounds. It's different than adultery? It is. <laughs> the FBI doesn't swarm your house for adultery, it turns out. So this is slightly different. The creepy thing was, like, it was funny, they. They talked about how he reacted during this whole FBI raid, mm-hmm. and apparently he was super calm, chill. Well, I mean, he... I don't know. He had to know that he'd get caught eventually, right? So, I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, he got away with it for a really, really long, long time. Really long time, absolutely. Maybe you start to feel kind of like, eh. Yeah. And the other thing is, so obviously, I mean... Or maybe he thought they wouldn't be able to prove that he did it. Maybe he was, like, so confident by that point because he'd been getting away with it for so long. Like, sure, you can arrest me, but good luck making it stick. Yeah. And I, I that was think, an like, IV joke. Oh, God. <laughs> that was so terrible. <laughs> that sucked. <laughs> oh, 
hate the term perfect crime, mm-hmm. but this kind of was. Absolutely. Because you think about, like, the people he was doing this to, when they would die, you know... Knew no they one, were expected to yeah, die. It no one was like, oh, bad medical treatment. You no, know, they, had late, they had cancer. Yeah, they had late-stage aggressive cancer. Absolutely. And the other thing is that when you... I guess when you go and get your blood tested... You know, they're not looking at what level of chemo do you mm-hmm. have in your blood. They look at other doctor things. <laughs> they look at, like, your blood soak. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm clearly in over my head, so I'll stop there. Okay, here's my next question. Oh, medical expert. Yes, yes. Okay, so my question now is, he was obviously doing this for profit. You know, he's making oh, yeah. so much yeah. money off of it. Mm-hmm. But he did he derive any kind of joy... The fact that it was killing these patients. I don't know. See, I'm going to go back to my fabulous episode of American Greek. Yeah. They talked about how he would go and, like, talk to people as they were receiving chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And to me, like, that's a God complex. Mm-hmm. That's a weird... I, I don't know. I don't know. Because it almost makes you wonder if he's, like, one of those, like, angel of death killer types of things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Interesting. Maybe he's even worse than we thought he was. Maybe. Hmm. I mean, he's already a monster now. He's... The entree thing. From it. Yeah. We, the entree we, thing sealed the deal. Yeah, we were already <laughs> mad at him about the entree, so this is just <laughs> icing on the cake. That's right. Okay, so before he turns himself into law enforcement... He gives a bag of cash and Prozac to his wife. Yes. And he attempts to transfer $5 million to his wife, uh, but only $2 million goes through because obviously, you know, law enforcement was this trying to freeze his, his assets. assets. Yeah. And um, for the record, all the money ended up going to a victim's fund. Oh, good. But still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's maybe a silver lining. Uh, like the tiniest, the tiniest silver lining. Of, so, yeah, I just, I just think like a bag of cash. Yeah. If Norman ever got carted off, I'd get like half a gift card to Chili's. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be like, "Wait to use this until I'm back." <laughs> Wait for me. <laughs> we'll go share a queso. <laughs> if you use this with some other guy, I'm gonna be pissed. <laughs> So at first he says, oh, I've only been doing this for a few months Mm. and I've only messed with three medications and it just affects 34 patients and I only did it because of the one million dollar pledge to the church. Okay. (laughs) Unpack that for me, Brittany. If you don't have a million dollars, you don't pledge a million (laughs) dollars to your church. Good common sense advice. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm not calling up the Jerry's Kids telethon and pledging a million dollars. But wouldn't it make you feel good to do that? <laughs> but it would make them feel really bad when I couldn't come through with that million dollars. And that was the one thing. Like, I kind of wonder what was going through law enforcement's head when they were like, when he said, I've only been doing it for a few months, only messed with three medications, it affects 34 patients. I'm sure that part, they were kind of like, God, I hope so. Bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) There's like the one guy in the back who's like, like, "Mm." uh -uh. (laughs) But like, the $1 million pledge thing was the one where they were like, no way. You live in the nicest yeah. house. You have nice cars. Like, you're... No. It's not just because no. of the $1 million pledge. Malarkey. 
That's what I'm saying. Malarkey. Malarkey. Clearly malarkey. Baloney. <laughs> you name it. That's what it was. So around this time, there was huge media coverage. And do you remember? Like I this, do. I this do was remember. when I got sucked into yeah, it. Yeah, I do remember the media coverage. Because we were high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was on... We were wearing really cool we um, platform flip-flops. So good. So good. <laughs> I had blue eyeshadow that had specks yes. of glitter. I wore. I had white eyeshadow. I wore mm-hmm. it every day. Yeah. I mean, it just made my eyeballs look like they were on my eyelids. I don't know. <laughs> and this was back when Bath and Body Works was doing their own makeup nice. line. Glitter everywhere. Yes. Yes. <laughs> my face did not match my neck. <laughs> But who needed to, you know? <laughs> hair so, straighteners were in their infancy. I had the largest straight hair because it wouldn't quite... My straightener was about three yes, inches thick. Yes, I remember So you those. couldn't get all the way to the root. So yes. you just had, like, weird hair here and then straight ends. Yes. Okay, and I remember thinking, obviously, you wanted the bigger straighteners <laughs> because, you know, it would go so much faster that yes. way. It'd be so much more effective. But, yeah, you'd have, like, common crazy, crazy roots. And yes. then, you know... Anyway, so we looked awesome. Yes. we Moral of that story. That. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here we, we are really swinging back and forth between horrible and then just here's the eyeshadow. <laughs> okay, so the FBI set up a victim hotline and they were getting hundreds of calls a day, about 3,000 total. Oh my gosh. And I have to wonder like, surely some people found out about this from watching TV. Absolutely. And so they were calling in with questions like, do I keep taking my medication? Um, and the one that I was just super disturbed by was people were like, okay, my loved one died. Yeah. Were they affected by this? And they quoted one guy. He said, my mother's been dead for two years and I was at peace with it. Now it's all up in the air again. And Oh, that is heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, that kills you because... You think about how horrible that would be to be grieving your mother and, like, maybe you get to a point where it's not feeling like a gut punch every mm-hmm. day. You know, you kind of get to where you've accepted it. And then you, you see this and Absolutely. you're like, okay. <sighs> Devastating. Yeah. Like, did she have to die? Or maybe yeah, she could have lived maybe. a couple months Absolutely. longer. I mean, who knows? Who knows? That's horrible. And there's no way to know. Mm-mm. And there was one lady who said... I hope I get this right, because it sounds kind of weird at first. But she was like, this was worse than the cancer. And she said, the thing is, the cancer, nobody did that to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I couldn't have prevented it. It just happened to me. But this, someone diluting my medication, like, that, they did that to me. Absolutely. You know, he looked at me, he knew me, he did that to me. And that's worse. That is worse. Yes, it is worse. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, on August 23rd, 2001, a grand jury indicted Robert Courtney. He faced 20 felony counts, including tampering with consumer products and adulterating (laughs) (laughs) and misbranding drugs. He was not charged with murder. I I think probably because it would have been hard to prove murder Mm -hmm. because people were already sick. Ugh, that that makes me sick, though. I know. Clearly he played a hand. Yeah. Um, And that's exactly right. Prosecutors were basically like, you know, 
it would be so hard to prove mm-hmm. that they wouldn't have died. They died anyway. Yeah, yeah. Or that for sure it was the diluted medication that played a hand. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Ugh. That's not satisfying at all. No, it's not. It sure (laughs) isn't. It sure isn't. (laughs) So he pled not guilty. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great, huh? Yeah. Uh, He eventually changed his plea, though. Oh. And this is when the criminal trial that never Never happened. happened. So he confessed, and when he confessed, he said, this goes far beyond chemo drugs. He diluted drugs that treat AIDS, multiple sclerosis. Hold on. <laughs> Let's take it again. <laughs> he diluted drugs that treat AIDS, multiple sclerosis, drugs that help with fertility, you know, and on and on. Oh, and my gosh. It was like any time he could find a way to make some money, he did it. And it, it really didn't seem to matter what the drug was, oh as long gosh. as he could make some extra money off of it. Um, so he admitted to diluting 72 different types of medication starting in 1992. My jaw is like on the floor right now. I know. He was caught in 2001. He started in 92. Oh my gosh. Almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's quick math that I did here. (laughs) Nine, nine years. (laughs) You're amazing. I'm also a math expert. (laughs) (laughs) Mathematicians. Um, we're also police, and um, I'm a doctor, so probably a number of other things, too. Yes. So the FBI came up with the scope of this thing. So the potential is he messed with 98,000 prescriptions from 400 doctors, potentially affecting 4,200 patients. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The scope of that. I mean, and I mean, a lot of people wouldn't even have any idea where their drugs came from or anything like that. No. Oh. I mean, you trust people. Yeah. You trust a pharmacist. Absolutely. Especially, have you seen a picture that of this guy? He today. just like <laughs> <laughs> We're going to flip off every pharmacist. Every pharmacist. I'm going to start making my own drugs <laughs> in my bathtub. You know, all you need is some essential oils. <laughs> That's right. Oh no, you've got somebody off so bad right now. doTERRA, we're not directing that directly at you. Please do not write us letters or emails or anything. Send us essential oils in mail. (laughs) Diluted essential oils. (laughs) Okay, so in December 2002, U.S. District Court Judge Ordy Smith said. Your crimes are a shock to the conscience of a nation. You alone have changed the way a nation thinks about pharmacists, the way the nation thinks about prescription medication, the way a nation thinks about those institutions we trusted blindly. Man, that was a good segue. Yeah. Yeah. So he uh, was sentenced to 30 years in a federal prison. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So he's there now. Yeah, he's there now. Do you know where he is? Oh, shit. Um, I mean, I didn't ask that. In the United States. Tell me. You can tell me where. Oh, okay. I I can make stuff up. He is in the United States. I want to say Kentucky. Okay. How cool would it be if I was right? That would be amazing. (laughs) Okay. So I do want to talk about the civil suits just because this is a uh, podcast about lawsuits. Let's go to court. So let's let's go go to civil court. court. Let's go to civil court, damn it. (laughs) 
So some sources say there were like 300 civil suits. Oh my gosh. A Washington Post story I saw said there were over 400. So who knows, but there Mm -hmm. were tons. And apparently in quite a few of these civil suits, Eli Lilly and Bristol-Myers Squibb, which are big pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. companies, were named as defendants. And the logic was you guys should have either... Figured out that this was yeah, going on. Yeah, you should. You either knew or should have known that something was going on. I mean, they probably should have known. Well, it's well, a lot of their drugs. Like they settled with the victims for yeah, seventy-two million say. dollars. <laughs> I have to agree that they should have known. It, it 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 would be interesting to know more from their side or something. But, Absolutely. But yeah, anyway, they they settled for. <gasps> We've got a representative from Eli Lilly in the hall. Daryl Ashley and Daryl Ashley's <laughs> boss. I'm sorry there's no room for them to come into this room. This room is getting so crowded. It's already super hot in here. Next time we do this, I'm going to be in a tube top. And I'm sorry for that. Okay, so, um, yeah, so they settled with the victims for about $72 million. I can't remember what the, you know, who paid exactly yeah. what. And... That settlement came into the news again a couple years ago. Apparently, some of the victims and family members said that the settlements were improper and should be thrown out. But in 2013, the Western District Missouri Court of Appeals denied those claims. Mm. So it seems like that's not... Uh, Improper how? They wanted more money or it wasn't divvied up properly? I'm not really sure. The article I read didn't go Go into into it too much. But I think it was basically that... It was done very, very quickly. Uh-huh. Um, why am I acting like I'm not an expert right now? I know. Uh, yeah. I'm getting all self-conscious. <laughs> like, I should have read more. <laughs> Look, the world may never know. No, right? That's but right. Absolutely. It's not that I didn't do enough research. <laughs> <laughs> it's that these things can't be <laughs> How dare you? So, the, the civil case that most people remember is Georgia Hayes' civil suit. And she had ovarian cancer. And an oncologist testified that because of the diluted medication she received from Robert Courtney, Georgia Hayes probably missed her best chance to cure the cancer. Mm-hmm. And that she'd probably die of ovarian cancer. And um, she said, you know, in front of the jury, and I, I love this quote, she goes, if I had my wish, they would paint all of our faces on his cell block wall so that when he goes to sleep at night, we are the last thing he sees when he wakes up in the morning, and we are the first thing he sees. Um, I think I read that wrong. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to say it. <laughs> I could tell by this silence you were like, oh, that doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> After I say what a great quote it is, and then I'm like, blah, blah, blee, blee, blee. <laughs> really interesting to see what makes the... (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Probably not this. Okay. So, Georgia Hayes said, if I had my wish, they would paint... Are you laughing? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, now we can't cut anything out because then it'll just seem like you're laughing. I know. Okay, hold on. I'm gathering myself. I'm Mm -hmm. ready. 
Georgia Hayes, who brought the civil suit, said, If I had my wish, they would paint all of our faces on his cell block wall so that when he goes to sleep at night, we are the last thing he sees. And when he wakes up in the morning, we are the first thing he sees. That is a powerful quote. Yeah. <laughs> when I read it correctly, it really is it's powerful. It's really great. It's a really great quote. Did I mention that I majored in journalism? <laughs> So, uh, the jury awarded her $2.2 billion. Oh my gosh. But it was symbolic. Mm-hmm. You know, she never saw any of that. But, yeah. but she didn't, um, she didn't really intend to see it. She, yeah. she basically said, I knew the money wouldn't come to me, but that this is not about This is money. not about money. Which I think is so powerful when he did this, you know, supposedly all for the money. She's Absolutely. saying, I don't really care about the money. It's about sending a message mm-hmm. to anyone who might be thinking about doing this, you know. Ugh. Anyway, so where are they now? Robert Courtney is still in prison. Where? Don't ask. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> Verda Hunter. Maybe Kentucky. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Verda Hunter is still an oncologist. And, okay, this is cool. One of the FBI investigators who investigated this whole thing became a pharmacist. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, isn't That's that cool? really cool. So she's a good pharmacist. Yeah. Then, um, this is sad, Georgia Hayes, who brought the famous civil suit against Robert Courtney, passed away. All of the eight patients that were named in the criminal case have died. And then, um, so remember I talked to you about that bag of cash Mm -hmm. in Prozac? Yes. Okay. So, it's interesting, in the American Greed episode, they said bag of cash, like, I think they said like 70 grand Mm -hmm. plus a bunch of Prozac. In other articles I read, they just said 160 grand cash. Around there. Didn't mention the Prozac. But anyway. One of the two is correct. Yeah. A lot of money. Yes. (laughs) So his wife, Laura, in 2003, pled guilty to making a false statement to law enforcement. So basically what happened, it sounds like, is Robert Courtney gave that bag of cash to his father with the instruction that he give the money to Laura. But when federal agents asked her about if she knew of her father-in-law having any money for her, she was like, nope. No, I haven't heard anything Mm -mm. about it. So, I she told the judge in, in this article I read that basically she was really scared. She didn't know what was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, she had kids. So, they she was sentenced to one day of unsupervised probation. Unsupervised probation. What the hell is unsupervised probation? It sounds like my life. Right? <laughs> like, no one is supervising. No one is supervising you. You're just on your own. But there will be consequences if I act up. That's right. (laughs) And so prosecutors stressed that there was no evidence that she knew anything about the dilution scheme, which I totally believe. I I mean, why would why would she? Yeah, why would he come home and be like, "Guess what I did today?" Yeah, no, I think he wouldn't tell anybody that he was doing that. No. So that's the story of Robert Courtney. That is crazy. Isn't that nuts? It is nuts. Um. uh, I I think I have a connection to this story. For real. For real. Um, there was, this is a really vague connection. Just don't get too excited. You know someone who was sick once? I know someone who one time had a cold. Uh (laughs) No, just kidding. Um, my uncle is actually a, a a real estate broker here in Kansas City. Uh And, um, an agent that he, or an agent or broker that he, um, knew well, I believe was one of the was a cancer patient at the time and was getting the drugs from Robert Courtney. So hard to know. I don't know any details about this whatsoever. You're an expert. Don't worry about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I believe she was somehow affected by it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, it seems like, I mean, that's pretty common in Kansas City. Like, it's not a huge place. Yeah. And he affected a lot a of people. A lot of people. Yeah. I will say, the thing I hated, I love this episode of American Greed. It's great. But the opening of the episode is like just shots of Kansas City. Uh-huh. And it's like, Kansas City, where humble people have great values. And it's one of those, like, <laughs> clearly people from not around here wrote this intro. Yes. About, and it's like, they're the salt of the earth, you know, a bunch <laughs> of good-hearted dummies. <laughs> we're just regular people. This is a, you know, it's we're not a cow town. It's a fairly regular city well, I, I just, feel like I just hate when people like try to say that maybe like people from the midwest or maybe people from the south are like oh they're all such good people they have good values it's like no some of us are no, assholes some of us are assholes some yes. of us dilute cancer drugs someone in this room is an asshole <laughs> <laughs> we're judgmental and bitchy that's right I mean but yeah aside from that we're just regular people yeah like everywhere else. Everywhere else. There's yeah. as many assholes here as there are anywhere else. There's as many nice people here as there mm-hmm. are anywhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good one. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. I mean... Wow, I you enjoy. really messed up. <laughs> I didn't enjoy... <laughs> Maybe I know enjoy what you is the wrong word. It's, it's always awkward when you talk about how you like true crime you like serial killers you like lawsuits because absolutely you know it's much less controversial to say you like bunnies i i also enjoy bunnies well focus on that (laughs) okay so we didn't think of how to wrap this up podcast a jerk (laughs) (laughs) ready yes one two three podcast adjourned and now for a note about our process I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got a lot of great info from the New York Times, the Kansas City Star, and a fabulous episode of American Greed. And I got my info from FamousTrials.com. So thank you, Douglas Linder, for your amazing research and writing. For a full list of our sources, visit LGTCPodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. It's amazing. Do it now. (laughs) 